I'm your host, Effie Pilarino, and today I have the pleasure to have in our company, George Zarkadakis, who is the digital lead at Willis Tower Watson, and I believe that he's also a fellow at the Atlantic Council. Am I correct, George? Yes, that's correct, absolutely. It's a think tank in Washington. Great. First of all, welcome. And tell us uh, a little bit more about both entities, the think tank, and then um, your company that's in the insurance business. I've been reading about the recent merger with uh, Aon. Uh, just give us a, a, a brief overview of both of your activities. Sure. Let me start with uh, my company, Willis Towns Watson. So we are an uh, international consultant organization. We consult around risk and we are also brokers for big um, uh, corporates when it comes to insurance. And we also consult around HR and that spans the whole gambit from uh, you know, systems and uh, organization and rewards all the way to pensions and benefits. So this is in a nutshell what we do. Uh, we are at a very sort of you know, happy uh, place uh, as we uh, combine with Elm. Uh, I personally believe that this is uh, a great combination of cultures, forces and talent. We expect the merger to complete, um, I would say, the first quarter or perhaps early second quarter next year. And the combined organization will be, I believe, a formidable um, sort of uh, um, player in the risk and HR space uh, globally. Now with the Atlantic Council, the Atlantic Council is one of the oldest think tanks uh, in, uh, in the US. Uh, its fundamental sort of aspiration is to ensure that the transatlantic bonds between North America, Canada, US and, uh, and Europe remain strong. I'm focused on an aspect of that aspiration that has to do with technologies that can support democracy, that can support democratic systems and um, improve the life of citizens in democratic countries. Great, which brings us directly to your new book, which is around that topic, uh, cybersecurity and democracy, and, and how all these are challenges and opportunities, I guess, in this age of you know, intelligent machines, the, the fourth industrial revolution, and so on. So tell us about your book, Absolutely. So, so I guess the reason that I wrote this book is because I was, I was shocked by what happened in the economic crisis of 2008-2009. And I believe this is, a, this is the time that we should consider as a tipping point when it comes to how much citizens trust uh, liberal democracy. Since this economic crisis, we had, and that shows in the data, a huge crisis of trust in a democratic system of government. So uh, that was, I would say, the trigger. Over those years, I had the opportunity to work with big corporates when it came to uh, what we call the future of work, how companies are investing in automation, in AI, in data, in robotic process automation, in robots, and how does that impact uh, work uh, for people in companies, but more broadly in society. I had the opportunity to work with the World Economic Forum. And at some stage, about two, three years ago, it all came together under a big question. So 
given those forces, right, from one side you have this uh, mistrust of citizens in liberal democracies and the rise of populism, okay? At the same time, you have another sort of force on the horizon, which means the erosion of full-time employment, uh, the platforming of work, the rise of the gig economy, and that goes across the whole, all the professions, not just the blue-collar workers, right? It's not just the people that deliver food to you, but you know, lawyers and engineers and accountants. Now, the combination of those two creates, uh, I would say, a very explosive mix when it comes to our democratic system of government, which is what guarantees our, our freedoms and liberties. So I took it upon myself to write a book from an engineer's point of view. So there's a lot of thought going into this subject coming from social scientists, from economists, uh, but not much coming from engineers, from technologists. And technology plays a very important role in what's going on. You know, think of echo chambers that have been created because of AI algorithms and the polarization of public opinion that leads to populism. Think of AI algorithms that are eroding work. So, so, you know, technologies of the fourth industrial revolution are at the heart of that transformation. And yet no one from, you know, from a technology point of view came in and said, okay, uh, here's a, a bunch of ideas that we, we can discuss on how we can perhaps repurpose those technologies for better outcomes when it comes to democracy, uh, reducing in, income inequality and so on. So that is, if you like, my journey to writing a book that tackled how can we actually rethink technology? How can we repurpose technology in order to develop new business models for digital platforms, to develop new ways for citizens to participate in the economy and to harness the power of data, which is very important and features very strongly in the book, in order to create new sources of income for the many. Okay, so, so this is... I, can I say that this is about looking at uh, creating social innovation in the broad sense, democracy, you know, the way we governance is done uh, at different levels is about social um, innovation. And you're focused on how to use technology for social innovation. Can we say that? In some ways, yes, but I would like to say also that I don't believe in social entrepreneurialism without economic incentives. Okay, I believe that the entrepreneurs of, of tomorrow will be the ones that create companies that deliver social good as well as financial good. Okay. So I see those two worlds of social entrepreneurialism, if you like, and the sort of good old-fashioned capitalist entrepreneurs merging okay. and and the reason why I'm seeing that because it can't be otherwise okay there is so much if you like pushback from society when it comes to big companies that the only thing about is profit there's so much pushback and I would say uh, a new awareness that we have to rethink you know the Washington uh, sort of uh, accords you know Milton Friedman's ideas you know we need to rethink you know how companies deliver on social, environmental, and governance goals. So all this discussion that's currently taking place leads me to think, okay, how can we start thinking about creating new business models that create new wealth, but this new wealth needs to be better distributed, distributed. So than fair. what happens today. Yeah. So you're yeah. talking about fairer uh, value creation if you want. 
Absolutely. And let me, give you a, let me give you a simple example that I'm mentioning in the book. Let's take, for example, a company like Facebook or any company that's built an, has built an advertising model around people's interactions and networks. When I join a, a, a digital platform such as this, I contribute my own data, okay? And I contribute also my own social network, the friends that I have. I might have like 100, 200 people that I know or know me. And that is something of value to that digital platform because they would use this information in order to target advertising and create money. Now, I'm not getting any of that money as I join this network. The only thing I'm getting is a service to maybe send a message to somebody, right? So this is the value that right now is contributed by thousands and millions of people as they participate in the current business models of digital platforms. Right? This is the economic value that everybody contributes. And yet that economic value, that everything that has to do with network effects arising from that contribution goes straight to the shareholders and investors and maybe the executive team of that, of that company. Right? The net result of that is that you have companies that have a lot of intangible assets. Their valuation is based on intangible assets, on those network effects, on those algorithms, on that software. They don't have many employees. They have very few employees compared to the companies of the past, the previous industrial revolutions. They create huge profits. And at the same time, in my opinion, create inequality. So how can we change that? Because that's clearly unsustainable. It's not just unsustainable for, for, uh, for our society. It's unsustainable for those companies as well, because those companies are being hit hard by the regulators right now. Right. Okay. So we need to find another way of thinking those digital platforms so they are, they are giving back at least some of that value that I am contributing, you're contributing, and everybody's contributing by their, their, their mere participation on the platform, if you see what I mean. Right. And that's where I believe, you know, to go back to what I said to you, uh, that if we start thinking about how we can use technology to affect that, like for example, how can we use crypto economics in order to affect that? Right? How can so for perhaps participants in Facebook 2.0 don't just participate on the platform, but by their participation automatically are granted some kind of token that reflects the value that they contribute, then we're talking about a different but also, game together. So those are the kinds of ideas I'm discussing in the book. Yes, great. Great. I mean, I think that uh, openly, at least uh, publicly, uh, from, from the big platforms, I can only uh, say that uh, Jack Dorsey of Twitter is the one that has openly said that Bitcoin and blockchain are going to be the basis for the future of Twitter, how it's going to be redesigned. So I'm sure it's some principles, um, uh, the principles that you just uh, described. Tell us a little bit about a concept that you have developed, and I don't know if it's in your book, but I know that you talk a lot about it in social media, which is this concept of data trusts. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so here's, here's what is becoming increasingly important when it comes to creating value from data. Right, developing those AI algorithms that can do predictions, give you insights, create better customer experience, you know, all that good stuff. For all that good stuff to happen, companies need to have data. Okay. If you don't have enough data and a very data set, 
that can perhaps look at the whole customer journey. If you don't have, only have a sliver of that customer journey, you can't really compete with those that do. So what we've got here, we've got a data chasm between the data rich companies that are very few and very successful and everybody else which is relatively uh, data poor, right? So it has become increasingly uh, important for companies to share data between them. Okay, so for example, if you are a, an airline company and I am a, a hotel chain, maybe we can share data of our customers to understand how, how people book holidays or how big people book their business trip. And maybe by combining those data sets, we can offer better services to our clients. But it's not easy to do that. There's all kinds of regulations, there's all kinds of ethics involved. So what the data trust does, it solves for that data sharing problem. What, how? By, by delivering two things. One is a legal structure. That means that the data trust, the place where those data come in in order to be shared, that place is administered by people who have fiduciary responsibility to the data providers. That is very important because for example, Google right now, when you give your data to Google, Google doesn't have fiduciary responsibilities to you, the data provider, it has fiduciary responsibility to its shareholders. So it's a completely different equation, right? And the second thing that the data trust does, it has a stack of technologies that can create transparency. That means you, if you're a data provider, you know how your data is being used by whom. It uh, in, in, involves uh, some very bleeding edge technologies such as homophobic, homomorphic encryption and differential privacy that it de-identifies the data or uh, federated learning. So a bunch of technologies that can ensure that that sharing can take place. So a data trust serves the needs of companies right now that want to share data in order to be successful. But there's another use for data trust, which I think is also very exciting, going back to this uh, big idea about how can, we, how can we create income for people in the future where income will be intermediate because of the future of work, right? And let me just spend one minute explaining this idea. Think of a smart city, for example. Right? Think of sensors, you know, IoT, 5G networks that collect data uh, from you know, how people move in the streets, how cars are moving in the streets, pollution levels, noise levels, all that data. Now, who does that data belong to? I would argue this data belongs to the citizens of that city. That's where it belongs. Right? The contributors of the data. I would say so, yeah. So that's like a common resource, right? It's, it's a great resource and unlike oil, it never ends. Right? It never, it, it's not a, it, it's, it's an abundant resource. So if we had a way of uh, putting this data, all this data together from a smart city into a data trust that belonged to the citizens of that city and administered in the way I've described, then what we would have, we have a great win-win here. First of all, the value of that data will be, will be uh, used in order to fund the income of those citizens and we're talking about billions of dollars and i can put some figures if you like to understand you know how important that is from a monetary point of view but at the same time you can open up obviously that data trust you give access to the data to any company that wants to use that data okay so you're creating both a new platform for innovation right you're leveling the field of innovation because for, for instance one of the big problems that startups have today is that you know they come up with great ideas but they can't scale up because they need data to scale up. So if you had the data trust like this, you could give access to the data to anybody. You don't have to be a big company or a big corporation. You could be a small, medium enterprise, not well capitalized, doesn't matter, okay? 
So those are the sort of ideas that I think we need to start thinking about, okay? In order to solve both problems of competitiveness, right? I mean, think of China, for example. China doesn't have any problems with privacy or, you know, legal or ethical. Data is all controlled by the government and the Chinese AI companies are enjoying right now uh, uh, the, the amount of data that, it, that can enable them to scale up. That is not the same in, in the West, okay? In the West, because of regulation, we're restricted. So we need to find a solution for that, right? So this is a way we can both solve the problem of accessing data from the private enterprises and at the same time creating a, managing a common resource for citizens so we can then, you know, fund things like UBI, for example, okay, or fund public services or, 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 and so on. Great. I mean, on that note of UBI, um, it's, a, it's a topic very dear to my heart. I, I just uh, published a, a, an article looking at uh, seven existing UBI schemes across the world from Alaska who has a UBI scheme, I think the oldest one to South Korea that has in a certain region and other um, smaller ones that some of them are older, some of them are used more recent and using stable coins. And I do think that all these ideas, yes, they are new, they're innovative, they're experimental, but it's the way that we will be heading to because otherwise we have schemes that are not sustainable at different levels, as, as you said. Um, You're absolutely right. And UBI is something that I think we need to explore a lot more. Uh, for example, my take on UBI is, first of all, it should not be delivered by the government. It should be uh, created by some kind of entrepreneurial, in some kind of entrepreneurial way. That's why I suggested uh, a data trust, for example. So I'm a little bit of a radical when it comes to UBI. I think if it was to be administered by the government, it would have been a very bad idea. But there are other ways of creating income, as the one I've described to you. I also think that there should be ways for people to get different levels of that income depending on their contribution. So I'm, I'm worried that the UBI, the way it's being discussed by most people right now, is this an extension of welfare. And welfare has been a very bad experience for people. Welfare just perpetuates poverty, right? And misery and, and broken families. So, you know, nothing good came out of that. Although the intentions are good, but always good intentions. You know, nightmares are paved with good intentions. So we really need to, you know, to think on the basis of what we know about human nature. And we know a, a few things by now. How can we ensure that we, we manage to balance two things? One is an existence where you are not stressed about not having income in a reg on a regular basis because that's what's going to happen in the future. So you're not stressed out about that. You have the opportunity to spend time to learn, which is very important, you know, continuously reskilling or explore other parts of yourself or, you know, be, be a happy person, you know, spend time with your family or whatever. We have to, to ensure that. And at the same time, enable people who are, want to do more things with their lives to achieve that, right? I, for me, you know, a future world where everybody doesn't work and just sits back and, and gets a minimum uh, income for doing nothing, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible idea. It's, it's a dystopian beyond, beyond belief. So how can we, you know, rethink work, rethink what is human, what human value is, and we have this opportunity now because of this new economy that's emerging, because of data, because of algorithms, because of those new opportunities that technology provides us. 
And I also think because we are at the stage as a society collectively that we, we, we are much more aware on all these levels that, that you mentioned of these issues. So we should be able to solve it if we put the, the intention towards it, right? We, we don't lack the... Uh, I, think, I think, you know, what drives change ultimately is ideology, okay? Is, is you know, the ideas that we all had in our heads, okay? And what worries me is that, you know, this new world requires a new set of ideas that is completely different. You know, just to mention one, you know, we are used in the economics of scarcity, for example, right? So we, you know, many people think of, you know, the economy as a zero-sum game, even, you know, your win, my loss, right? Uh, we have to think in a completely different way. I mean, I mentioned data. If you have two data sets that are of value A or B, right? If we combine them, the combined value is much larger than the, than the sum of the individual values, right? We have an exponential result by combining data sets. This in itself is, is, is a unique thing in, in human history when it comes to economics. So we really have to, you know, come to grips with those new opportunities that we have in order to start thinking about the economy, start thinking about society and forge a new kind of ideology. Uh, I hope it happens soon, however. Yeah, I hope it does. <laughs> it happens soon, so me, me and you, you and me, we can see it. Uh, and on that note, I'd like to close with a mathematical formula that we are all familiar with that I think expresses exactly what you said. So we all know that A plus B all that in parentheses square is equal to a squared plus b squared plus 2ab. So this is exactly what you're saying. If you combine two assets together, mm -hmm. then you get extra value. It is, it is clear, whatever it is, whether it is monetary value, intangible value, any economic value. And I think that we are the narrative now is changing. We are understanding that what matters is not only financial value. Otherwise, it's not sustainable anymore. We've gotten to that point and to, many, to creating many inequalities, as you mentioned, that are unsustainable and are creating other negative ripple effects in democracy, in society, clearly. And on that note, I want to thank you, George, and uh, I hope uh, to talk to you soon again. And uh, maybe with innovation, we will see some of the things that we discussed being actually implemented in society. I hope so. Thank you, Effie. Thank you. Thank you.